Hi, everyone. You're listening to Superwomen. Today's guest, I'm really excited. I kind of fangirled out on her, uh, is Maria Sharapova, the amazing, world-renowned athlete and tennis player. We talk about her going from winning all these glorious titles in tennis to being an entrepreneur. She still runs the day-to-day of the company, which is really impressive to me, being that she's traveling uh, most of the time. So take a listen. So today, everyone, I am beyond excited. I am with Maria Sharapova. If you haven't heard of her, uh, she won Wimbledon in age 17, five Grand Slam titles, the seventh female player in the uh, open era to compete in the Grand Slam. So, wow. She reached out to me, which makes me so excited that she wanted to do this podcast. So please, well, you can't give an applause, but I'm I hear here. It. I hear the applause. <laughs> the, <"Woo!" laughs> so thank you for doing this with me. Thank you for having me. I am a big fan and I love listening to podcasts. It's such an, an amazing way to reach out to people and, and connect on a much more personal level. Totally. So I would love to like start at the very beginning of your like transition. You moved to the U.S. when you were six. Yes, I was a very little girl. So I have a five-year-old, so I'm trying to imagine the transition you must have gone through going from Russia. Right. And what was that, you know, did you say you wanted to move? Like, how did that whole thing happen? So just a little background. So my parents were living in Belarus. My mother was pregnant with me and just around the time when Chernobyl hit. And um, because of Chernobyl and because of how close we were to the radiation, my parents fled to Russia and Siberia. And that's where I was born. We quickly got out of there. I was around two years old and we moved to Sochi, which is a town where we just had the host of the Winter Olympics a few years ago. But it was it was a completely different change in my life. So at six years old, after I began playing tennis, my my father wanted to develop um, a tennis dream of mine by moving to the United States, which everyone recommended um, because there's just no infrastructure. There were no coaches. There's no way really to develop a sport, that sport, that particular sport at that time. So we wanted to, they wanted to move. And my mom didn't move with us for the first two years. Whoa. Yes. So I was just a, a six-year-old girl and we didn't come back for those two years because of we couldn't on the visa that we had. So I didn't have that relationship with my mother for those two years, um, which is probably the most difficult part of that. But in that journey, I felt like moving to a new culture and doing something. I love to play tennis. I loved, I was just surrounded by so many kids that had the same passion that I did. Yeah. And I was learning a new language. I moved here without knowing a word of English, only how to say my name. And that developed into this career. So I have so many questions on the heels of that. One of them being did your dad, like, how did they know you had this innate talent? Because I feel like something like ballet or tennis, like there are these things that, you, you know, you can see it in that person, you know? Yes. So my mom had no interest in sport at all, which is so funny because no one in my family really had any talent or knowledge or experience in in sport and particularly in tennis. My dad was a fan. He played. My mother was a dancer occasionally, but there was no... There's nothing that we could like b- go back on experience and say, okay, this is how they did it. Right. And when my father was playing for fun, I joined him and I was always around my parents. Like my, my mother didn't want to take me to kindergarten or preschool. She was very young when she had me. So I would follow her around everywhere. 
I would go to university with her. I would go to the library with her. She'd be doing her exams and I was right by her side. Wow. Um, so the trans, you know, that, that personal story was very important. But then Martina Navratilova held a tennis clinic um, at the age of five. And we went there in Moscow. We used the little amount of money that we had. We got there and she kind of like pointed me out. She came over to my father and said that I had a real big talent, which I still till this day don't quite understand how she did that. Because when I see children that are that young, it's so hard to recognize talent. And right. because, you know, children, we have so many, we want to do so many things at the same time, we lose interest so quickly. Um, but I just seem to have a type of focus that others didn't have. And I enjoyed the repetition of hitting this tennis ball over and over that I think um, you know, she saw that and she it was so different to what maybe the other kids were focusing on. Wow. So I hear and a lot of moms like talk like this, like we feel guilty for missing, you know, two nights of the week we have to work late. And we're like, oh, man, the guilt is so hard. But I'm trying to understand like how you and your mom kept that relationship alive. And like, how did she deal with not being around you and you not being around her for those two years? So there, the limited communication that we had was through letters. Right. So we wrote physical letters. Um, calling her was very expensive. So I did occasionally speak to her, but very rarely, maybe once a month. Um, I remember writing letters to her and writing in the end, I love you, I love you, I love you in Russian. And I would have like little um, young kids next to me making fun of me that I was almost writing like a love letter to my mother, <sighs> but they had their parents right next to them. So I think it was it was hard for them to really recognize and understand what I was going through. It definitely, it was extremely hard for her. I think it was much harder for her than it was for me because I was in this atmosphere of doing what I loved every single day and doing it repetitively and then competing. And it was, it was so much fun. And it was like this, it was like school with a lot of people that were doing the same thing and I wanted to excel at it. But being, being away from her for her, that was incredibly difficult. Yeah. So what do you think about your approach to tennis and playing the sport set you apart aside from your innate skill? Like what did you sort of mentally have to do to bring yourself to become so successful? So I used to look at photographs of the photographs that you usually see are of a champion holding a trophy and then you see the runner up next to them. And whenever you would see that photograph, you would see the winner with the biggest smile on their faces and then the runner up just like bawling, crying. Usually as a child, you're so upset you got all the way to the end and you end up losing. And I always saw the difference in the two in that photograph. And from a young age, for some reason, it hit me that no matter at what stage I was of winning or losing that event, I never really wanted to show my emotion. I was always going to have a poise and a smile on my face and not like a, you're, I was too young to, to think that I was grateful for that opportunity, but it was that I didn't want anyone to know how I did and that I was going to act the same way as if I was winning or losing a match. And I think that kind of carried over to competing. And I think that's one of the best like mental skills that I have is that no one really knows if I'm winning or losing in a match. I think I carry the same demeanor on the court um, as I do, like if things are not going well or things are going extremely well, because I think I know how easy it is to lose it when things do go well. So I try to remain focused and more on the next point rather than feeling like I'm in a position of victory. And is your family still involved? Like, is your dad still yeah. involved with you in the sport? 
Well, I'm an only when, child, right. so I'm very. I'm, I have an amazing relationship with both of my parents, which I'm very fortunate um, to have. Um, I'm very close to my mother, and she's like my best friend. And they're very different characters, and both you know, each individual has brought very different things to my life. She's very cultural; has never really been involved in sport. Um, supports me like so much off the court as well. Like she doesn't even go to my matches because she's like, at the end of the day, you come home, whether you win or you lose, you're my daughter. And that's like the biggest victory for me. Whereas my father was um, very sport influenced. You know, he loved bringing me to all these different coaches around the world to try to help me become a better player. Um, And very unselfishly realizing that he wasn't the person that was in control. He wanted other people's opinions. So that was incredibly admirable. Um, He remained my coach, traveling coach, till I was 21 years old. I won three Grand Slams with him. Wow. And he's still very much involved in my career. He he doesn't go to tournaments anymore. Um, And that was a big step for me because I, I really wanted to, that journey with my father and I actually wrote an autobiography a few years ago. And that path that I had with my father was such a special one. It was like I was under his wing, felt like he paved this road for me and I was just living it. I was riding through it. And when I won my third Grand Slam, I had this like independent feeling where I loved him. I loved the way that he contributed to my career, but I wanted to to attempt to do it on my own. Right. And, you know, sitting here um, many years later and having won another two Grand Slams without him, even though those moments were bittersweet, but it was like I had to work extra hard to achieve them. So they, they meant a lot to me as well. And But he's still very much involved in, in the decision making of my career. So after tennis, um, after uh, what gave you the entrepreneurial bug or did you always have it and you were just like, it's just a matter of time before I launch something new? Yeah. When I was younger, I think the first like initial entrepreneurial bug that I had was in fashion. Like I loved, I worked with Nike. I worked with Tag Heuer, like doing campaigns for Tag Heuer with a Patrick DeMarchier was like my first step into like the fashion world. So where I got the likes of Louis Vuitton and Chanel to lend me dresses. I remember DKNY allowed me to travel with clothes while I was doing appearances around. um... I'll let you travel with clothes if you want. (laughs) But at that point as a little girl, that was a big, big deal. Totally. so, and then I was working on a collection with Cole Haan for a few years because uh, Nike had owned Cole Haan. So creatively, that was like a passion of mine. And that's when I started understanding business. I mean, I always, tennis, I realized from a very young age is not just a sport. A lot of it is business, which, you know, which is also very difficult and, and you which can part say of dirty. Is, and Which part of it is the business? Um, I think everything that away from the court, a lot of the like from earnings to brand building to everything else as incorporates business. Right. Okay. So, but through fashion, it was my first, I guess, pathway into the knowledge of business. And then, and I think that I just realized and recognized from an early point, maybe I was in my early twenties that I thought, okay, well, I'm not going to be playing tennis for for the rest of of my life. Even though I've done this since I was a young girl, I'm a woman. I want to have a family. I have a close relationship to my mother. I don't know when I'm going to end the sport and end my career, but I want to have other avenues and I want to start building this so that when I do finish my career, it can be today, it can be tomorrow, it can be in 10 years that I've already began. Right. 
what was the first thing you approached as kind of your own, like outside of the licensing with, or, you know, the collaborations you did with Nike and Kohan? So that was the real difference was when I, when I started making most of my money through earnings, but then I also, you know, I was becoming the face of certain campaigns and working with big car brands and water brands. And at the end of the day, I was a very, even though they were lucrative deals with really big companies, I felt like a very small part of the company. And I think my competitiveness kicked in was like, you know what, I want to be a little bit more than that. Yeah. And at 21, 22, um, I wanted to start my own business. So I started a candy brand called Sugar Pova, um, which has evolved into many, many other types of sweets throughout these last seven years. Talk to me about the difference or the, the fun. Like, it's like you, here you are you know, world famous tennis player. And then you started sugar, you know, sugar and candy. Like Mm -hmm. how did that juxtaposition happen? I think because I understand the, the amount of work and the rigor and, and the everyday stress of being an athlete and being so diligent and consistent with what you do. And the importance of that is huge, but I also I have this like side of me that's very, it's not like naughty, but it's like rebellious in a way that I want to treat myself. And whether that's like being next to my grandmother and cooking a cake where she scoops like three scoops of of sugar in there, (laughs) you know, (laughs) I want to be a part of that. And, and you, and I felt like, you know, I work, we work so hard. I work hard. You work hard. Everyone works so hard, no matter what we do from, and to consistently say no to those like indulgences in our life is actually spending more energy than just giving each other a break and saying, you know what, today I'm going to have something, you know, that might not be the best for me, but it's better than, you know, saying no hundred percent of the time. Right. Cause then you're like me and then you cheat and then you cheat big. I do. And sometimes that's okay. <laughs> no, but I'm, I like withhold myself all the time. Then I'm like, oh, fuck it. I'm going to eat all the croissants I can. I remember like I went to Paris and I think I had 10 in a day just because I was like. But to be fair, croissants in Paris don't seem as fattening as they do here. Like I think the produce is so much better. Don't get me started. I, I know. I'm like so upset at America and it's food. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hold up. 
So you didn't approach uh, Sugar Pova as something like, oh, I'm going to put my name on this. You really, it's your company and you make it is a company. lot of the day-to-day decisions, the creative, all that. So I know yes. it's grown because I see it everywhere. <laughs> and you. my kids, I had to put it on like, I got a bunch at a, an event and I had to put on like the out top, of their, top, shelf. top, top shelf because they were addicted <laughs> to it. And I was like... For special occasions. Yeah. So I do. I own 100% of it. I still do financially own it. I remember I initially invested half a million dollars and in it. And I, it was such a, it was a transition in the, in my thought process of business because I realized that I was fortunate to have made really good money in the, in the few years, in the first few years that I came on the tour and started doing well. And I won my first grand slam being 17 years old. And I think my thinking process and also the way that I worked with my manager, who's been my manager since I was 11 years old and he is till today, Wow. we just kind of gained a new perspective of, isn't it so much better? You, know, you don't need the money right now. You don't need the money tomorrow, but isn't it so much better if you invest your time and your effort and your skills and your knowledge and not get paid right now, but maybe be rewarded down the line and something that you believe in. Right. So that's kind of the shift that I had. And, and one of the reasons I, I started Sugar Pova. So what was surprising to learn about suddenly, you know, being thrown into a business you own 100% of, you're making all these decisions that maybe were different from your previous life? Well, the first thing that surprised me is when I started it, I was I was much more like I was very involved in the creative. Like, that's what I loved about it. I don't think I never thought that it was a, even a possibility to sell the to sell the business. Like, honestly, I never I mean, I knew what venture capital was, but not really. Um, I knew like business details, but certainly not as I do right now. Um, so it was never even in question. Now everyone's like, do you now everyone asks me you know, when, when would you look into selling this? Would you consider selling this? And it's never, it's never the way that I thought of the business. It was like such a personal experience and journey for me and a a big learning curve as well. I mean, to learn about a consumer good that goes through retail and distribution and brokers and all these things. (laughs) So before we started recording, you told me that you spent six days in the last six months at home. So how do you run such a huge company being gone all the time? Great people that work with you and for you. I'm also very disciplined in my work. I'm organized. Um, I set priorities. Like my sport is, is my top priority. When I wake up, it makes me feel the best. Like I, I love waking up and, you know, I, I love putting on my, like my sports clothes or my tennis clothes. It, it doesn't make me feel like Wonder Woman, but it feels like this is what I'm meant to be doing. And I still love that feeling very much. And in the time when I, you know, in between when I'm doing physical therapy, I'm on the table and I'm getting work done. I'll have a business podcast on or I'll be doing emails and I'll be working on creative or I'll be confirming, I'll be taste testing, I'll be shipping it, you know, sending FedEx and UPS all over the world. And, you know, I make it work. I I have so far, but I do have a really, really great team that that helps me build it. That's amazing. How many team members do you have? I have like four full time employees and then a lot of others. (laughs) Awesome. And so what has been a failure that occurred that you in the business. I mean, I think we have failures every week, at least every day. I just got one today, right before I got here. Some good, some good, terrible news. Oh Um, but what's something that occurred and then how, what did you do to, I don't know, keep going or how did you Mm -hmm. face that failure and get stronger from it? So in Sugar Pova, I've had to face a lot of decisions that 
include like certain stores that we want to be in. So when I first started Sugar Pova, like for me being in Colette in Paris was like, it was incredible that Sarah took our product and it was front and center in the store. But with time you realize like, you're not going to make a lot of money by being in a Colette. Like it's an amazing marketing tool. Um, so you have to, I think like the understanding where your product sits, like creating the vision for it, but also making it a business. I never wanted to create an expensive hobby. I'm a competitive girl and I want this to succeed, but I have a certain vision of where it should sit. But then I also want to be making money. So that's always like, you know, it's, it's a, it's a consistent conversation that I have with my team because you want to make sure that your product is placed where you envision it to be. But at the end of the day, when you're sitting there with your financial team, you want to see numbers that are expected to be in the account. Totally. That's very different than a lot of the people I interview who are fine with negative numbers because they like, they're like, oh, there'll be a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. But it's, I'm like, <laughs> no, I want that pot of gold now <laughs> or, well, or consistently. Not, not that you're. Yeah. I, I think you have to be, you have to be going in the right direction at least. Totally. If you're consistently in the red and there's no, you know, whether it's the people, whether like you can have a vision all you want, but you can have a reserve and you can have whatever it is, but unless you just want to be working and not seeing, isn't it nice to like see the company in the green at times? <laughs> totally. It's like those, that yeah, little it's, like it's mini, a, like, woo, yeah, today we were green. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I can never compare it to, to people always ask me like, what is, how do you compare like business and in, in your sport? And I always say in sport, you have this feeling of a match point. So you have everything that you've worked towards is in this one single moment. And it's like so many things that have ups and downs are all on the line. You don't really get that. Like, and you win that match point and you, you fall down to the, to the ground. And I mean, I've only had five of them through since I was four years old, you know, and I say only like relatively speaking, like if you think of all the years, but it's incredible to have five, but you work 365 days a year to get to those moments. And there's nothing really like it that I felt in business. There's not that one point, like you might get a great phone call, you might get a great email that says you're, you got this account, you worked for a long time, but there's no, you know, you might go and have a drink with your team, but there's none of that, like you're in front of 20,000 people and people see that, that incredible moment. Yeah. I was just with a bunch of female entrepreneurs and I was saying, if you think that feeling, that match point feeling is going to happen, I think as an entrepreneur, we have like a, call it a sickness. It's not a bad thing, but like you get to where you think is going to be that feeling. And you're like, no, I want this. You're disappointed. Yeah. You're like, oh, that's, it's that's never what, what you feel. It's yeah. never what, and even in my sport, it's never you visualize. I'm, I'm a big believer in visualization, but it doesn't, it's not like it comes just because you do it. it right. It comes out and it happens the way that, you know, my father used to tell me, like, you can make all the plans you want and then God laughs at them. Right. So always I keep that in the back of my mind, even when I visualize. One thing I would love to know is whether it's sport related or even at work, like, how do you deal with setbacks? Because I feel like women take it harder than men when there's like a failure. Like right. it's personal, but maybe, maybe you. Very personal. Yeah. yeah. It's hard. Yeah. It definitely does because my work is so exposed, my failures, and I fail more than I succeed to the public eye right. because you're only a winner in the public eye if you're holding the winner's trophy and the winner's check. Right. So I'm vulnerable a lot of the time because you're 
as a, as a tennis player, as an athlete, you have a game and a match and you, no matter how it goes, you face the press after you face the press before a tournament and they can ask you anything. Like there are no rules. There's no rule book. Right. Anyone pretty much can get a pass to your press conference. And without those guidelines, there are a lot of things that come up that occasionally aren't expected. Occasionally you're are not on the same wavelength as you are. Like I'll finish a match and I'm feeling pretty good about things like win or lose. Like at least I feel like I'm in the right direction, but maybe I've had a losing streak or maybe in their eyes, because it's so result oriented, you can write on paper, like lose, 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 lose. (laughs) I've learned in very hard way to understand that everyone was always have an opinion about things that you do and the way that you the choices that you make, um, your performances, even though sometimes you don't have a full grip on them, um, you want the best outcome, but sometimes it doesn't happen and you end up with a really bad day. And they're there to pursue that. They're there to make a headline and they're there to create clickbait. So I face that a lot and I've learned to, I feel like so neutral about it now. I In the last few years, it's really like, No matter what people ask me, I've had to learn the hard way, like to give a professional answer, to give them an honest answer, to be the person that that I am deep down inside. Like, this is me. This is what you're going to get. And I know I recognize that you might not love all of it and you might have an opinion, but at least I gave you myself. So how do you, being that you're on the road all the time, how do you carve out time for you? Because I struggle with that when I'm on the road. Right. I'm I'm quite simple in my routines. So recovery is just a big part of of being in sport and that feeling of doing nothing is incredibly important because you know sleeping like I feel like in the last few years a lot of people are speaking about sleep. I mean Ariana wrote a whole book about it. Yes, she did. But sleep has been a huge part of my life ever since I was young. There's just no way around it. You you can't be a professional athlete without getting the, the eight or nine hours at night and then maybe a nap in the afternoon. Like to get through an eight hour day of training, it's really the only recipe to, to keep doing it week in, week out. Um, so that's like an incredible um, big part, like being diligent with those routines and setting time for yourself. Like sometimes I, I do feel like I, I hit a wall. And I feel like I have so much on my plate and I have family that I want to see and I have a boyfriend that I want to travel to, you know, the the challenges of being like in a long distance relationship while having a business and a career um, as an athlete, but then having maintaining a really strong bond with your parents, um, growing a business. It's it's a lot of things. So I do I do, you know, have this feeling of I'm crashing, I'm crashing, I need but you know what? Then I have 24 hours to myself and I'll go to the spa and maybe get a facial and I'll, I'll walk and read for the afternoon and I won't be around my phone and I wake up the next day and I just, I'm ready. Yeah. I have the passion. I'm focused. Um, I'm motivated. And as long as you have that, I feel like as long as you have the tools around you, the right people around you, and people are so important in life, the way that they make you feel, the way they encourage you. And I, I bounce off of a lot of people. Like I'm very, I don't know about you, but I, I'm influenced easily when I'm around people. And sometimes it's nice to be on your own. Sometimes it's nice to take those trips and time for yourself to really 
when I'm sitting at a dinner, even though I have an opinion when I'm speaking to my friend or business partners, their opinion really influences the way that I start thinking. Right. And sometimes it's so good to take a step back and think for yourself and recognize that your thoughts are just as important and just as valid. Totally. That's really a good point. I, I think that my time alone is sometimes on an airplane, but I'm like, oh, no one can bother me. It's and so I'm nice. not I'm not going to do the Wi-Fi. I love this. I love those flights. <laughs> so what's coming up next for you? So I'm... I'm working with a, the reason I haven't been home is because I'm, I'm training in Europe now. Um, I have a new team that's based in North, Northern Italy. And so I've spent a lot of time there in the last few months and I'm going to be spending a lot of time, um, going into the new season there as well. So it's just like a boot camp. <laughs> wow. It's like one big boot camp, but I am going to Africa. Um, amazing. Which I've t- set that time aside for myself and for my boyfriend. And we're going on an amazing trip in a couple of weeks. So that will be great. And and after those trips, I usually come back and I'm ready for a six, six week training block. Totally. And then, um, yeah, the Australian Open will be in January. Wow. So that's what you're training with the Italian team for? Yes. And what's the name of the Italian team? It's a Piatti Tennis Center. Okay. <laughs> Shout out to them. <laughs> so I like to ask my guests two things. Um, something we'd be surprised to know about you. I My family is from Belarus, so that's my surprising oh, thing wow. to you. So who knows? Maybe we're like far distant cousins. Oh, my goodness. What is surprising about me? Ooh. Um, I am so stubborn. And I know maybe that's not a surprise, but I am incredibly stubborn. I'm like if you read what an Aries is in the horoscope, I am exactly that, like word for word. Like um, stubborn that, like, I have trouble apologizing when I'm wrong and I'm really stubborn about that. But are you stubborn huh. in, in other ways? Like, how are you stubborn? Or just like, this is my like, goal I'm and I'm st- not retreating e- from it. Both. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm stubborn in the positive way and I'm stubborn in the, the negative, negative way. way. Yeah. So you get a little bit of both in that. But I read horoscopes all the time because I'm such a big believer in mine. Right. That I actually take people like I I take advice on other people based on it. Right. And which I shouldn't. It has. Even like relationships and things. Wow. Yes. Awesome. Okay. So, and then the other question I like to ask is either advice that from learnings you've had or failings you've had, or someone who gave you amazing advice that you feel like you want to pass on. So my mother used to, well, she still tells me we can be going through so many things in life, whether it is one of the best moments in life or one of the toughest challenges in life. And our life path is like a zebra's coat. So we have those white lines where everything is smooth and it's according to plan and it's butterflies and rainbows. But realistically speaking, it's not going to last forever. So you have to know that in advance. You have to recognize that in advance. You can't live you know, above the clouds and you can enjoy it and appreciate it, but you have to be real. And I think that's that advice, like that there will always be the ups and downs, like you have a tough time and you have this black line in your life. It's inevitable that things are going to get better. Time passes, things will get better and you'll get back on the white line. So seeing a little bit ahead and not just being like, oh, this is, I'm just going to ride this forever and ever, like being smart about the way that you see the future. Love that. Awesome. Thank you. That was Maria Sharapova. You can find her on Instagram or you can go buy her amazing yummy candies, Sugarpova, pretty much everywhere in the world. 
Thank you.